Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and it is Tuesday, December 6th. And for this episode, I am happy to welcome Fool.com contributor Seth McNew to the show. Uh, he is joining us via Skype from Denver, Colorado, I believe. Uh, you can never be sure with Seth since you do so much traveling. How are you, man? Good. I'm good. Thanks a lot for having me back. So, how many places have you been to in the past week, two <laughs> weeks, month? How many places have you traveled oh, to? I do do a bit of traveling. Uh, I think in the last month, I've probably been in, I don't know, maybe six or seven cities, I guess. Uh, there you go. I'm I'm quite envious uh, with all the, <laughs> but all college towns, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, last this last week, I was in Minneapolis at the University of Minnesota. So, college town, but, you know, that's still a city. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Getting to the main topic for our show today, uh, I want to talk a little bit about dual share class structures after seeing the news last week that Under Armour would be changing up its ticker symbols. Uh, and after covering some of the, uh, I guess, oddities that have come about as a result of their uh, their two share or three share classes, actually, we can talk more about the ultimate, I think, implications for investors and look at some of the, the more interesting developments in the sports apparel industry that would seem to buck the trend of uh, what I think a lot of people associate with retail. So, Seth, why don't you kick us off? Can you give us a, a quick rundown on what the changes were that they announced last week and uh, what it generally means? Sure, yeah. So, last week, Unarm announced that they are changing, again, their ticker symbols. Uh, this is the second change this year. So, the idea is that their shares right now are UA and UAC. Those are the two publicly traded ones. Uh, the UA shares will turn into UAA, and the UAC shares will turn back into just the plain UA. And uh, what is, I guess, the main difference? I know that ultimately it comes down to the voting rights, but uh, what what has been, uh, what is otherwise the um, the main incentive, I guess, for this structure? where uh, you have these multiple different classes. Right, so it just comes down to voting shares. You have your your voting shares, which right now are the UA, will be the UAA, and then the non-voting shares, which is the UAC and will be just UA. And then you have another class of shares, UAB, which is owned by Kevin Plank, and those are the main voting shares. Uh, and so the idea with, you know, lots of companies like Google have these kinds of different classifications for voting and non-voting shares. What's really interesting is while there usually is a bit of a price disparity between the two, there's a very big disparity with Under Armour. So as of today, it's nearly 20% between the voting and non-voting shares. Yeah, I think that is what um, most people have uh, assigned. You know, the most significance to this news is seems like Under Armour is trying to kind of shift and. Uh, address maybe a little bit of this spread that has grown quite consistently. Uh, so uh, I should note that you know previously it was the Under Armour shares and then or the UA and then the UAB. So those B class shares, as you mentioned, um, Plank owns all of those. I think there's about 35 million or so of them. And due to the 10, uh, the essentially the 10 votes per share that those get versus the one vote. On A shares, he has about a sixty-five percent a voting interest. So you know, overall, he has control of the company. It's not 
frankly uncommon among these founder-led companies. You know, that's it's their vision. They started it, and uh, I think a lot of investors, if you're buying into Under Armour, you very much understand the fact that you're buying into Plank's vision, and right. that he has been the driving force behind this company with everything that it has done so well in terms of its growth, its expansion, but also you know any hiccups here and there. But overall, I think people are quite happy with how the company has performed, how the shares, uh, the the returns the shares have had. Though you know we can get to some of the uh, the weaker trading that has seen in the past year. Uh, but uh, you know there was a, essentially a one for one share dividend issued. So for every class A or class B share you held, you got a class C share back in April. And so um, you know that twenty percent disparity uh, has been pretty consistent now, and it's just a very odd. Um, it feels very odd when you know the economic interest of these shares is exactly the same. It really comes down to those voting rights. And the thing is, you know, for an individual investor uh, like our listeners, like ourselves. You know, the we are not going to be uh, accumulating enough shares to have a major, you know, uh, voting interest. Anyway. Right, right. You know, if you're an institutional investor, it certainly becomes much more value. You can uh, have more input with management, maybe get a place in the board. But for ourselves, you really, uh, you know, there was a discussion on it on an episode of Market Foolery last week as well, and they basically uh, break it down to the fact that you. Really should just be getting into those Class C shares, enjoying mm-hmm. that you know what you described that twenty percent discount. And if you believe in this company and you believe in its long term vision, which we'll talk about more, that seems like the right way to go, is it not? Like, doesn't that just seem like a huge opportunity for someone who's trying to buy in and, and get essentially a twenty percent discount? Right, absolutely. I mean, with the, with with most companies, there you know there should be disparity. Like, it's valuable for a large investor to be able to have some say in the company and where it's going with your voting. Uh, but for Under Armour, it's just it's a moot point. You know, Kevin Plank, like you said, owns sixty five percent of the vote. So there's nothing that any investor, whether you have shares that are voting or non voting, are going to be able to do for this. So uh, for at least the foreseeable future, until that that changes, that he doesn't have total control. Uh, these non-voting shares definitely look to be like a great discount into what looks like a great company. Yeah, and uh, I should add that though the uh, the spread that the two share classes, the publicly traded ones, have seen recently, that twenty percent is high, and I think it actually was higher at one point. Uh, yeah, it, I believe it almost reached thirty percent based on closing prices at one point. Um, but it's not, uh, you know, you completely, completely unique to Under Armour. Uh, another mm-hmm. company that we've spoken about recently on the show is Viacom, and so they have their Class A shares, Class B shares, same situation except Class A shares. Um, uh, again, have the voting rights. Class B does not. Again, economic interests are the same. They share equally in dividends. If the company is ever liquidated for any reason, again, they share equally in the proceeds from that between the two classes. Um, but you know, the majority of those Class A shares are held by National Amusements, uh, which is controlled by the Redstone family, which gives them you know their essentially their power over Viacom, their control over Viacom. And the thing is, um, I'm not sure how much. Uh, You've been following this story, uh, Seth, but you know that I, in, I feel like in the past year, people really saw a little bit potentially of the uh, 
you know, how significant that voting interest and that uh, influence can be, <laughs> though, when you hear about the power struggle essentially between Jerry Redstone, between the CEO and other management uh, members of the management team who have since been uh, booted from the company. And the thing is, you know, if we look back 10 years, even 10 years, the spread for those two uh, classes of Viacom shares at one point topped. 25%. So similar here to the Unarmor situation, but I think the really interesting the thing to note is while that spread had decreased uh, through by you know uh, in the more recent years in 2016 or in the past year or so with all this um, with the company making headlines with this power struggle that spread between the sh- two share classes has grown to about 10 to 13% where it sits now. And I think it's an instance where investors can be reminded that uh, for us personally, uh, you know, those voting rights might not be that valuable, but for the more institutional players, mm-hmm. it does uh, absolutely play a uh, play a role in that kind of decision that you make before they take a, a big position in a company. Absolutely, and hopefully, uh, Under Armour won't experience nearly as much drama as that company has experienced. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a bit of a soap soap opera the last couple of uh, months. <laughs> yep. So, um, all right. Uh, refocusing on Under Armour, uh, and I want you. Uh, could you give us a little bit more, uh, I guess, of a view in terms of Plank and what we can expect? I think in the next five, ten, twenty years, and uh, generally, you know, how do you view, uh, you know, some of the initiatives that he's pursuing? Uh, we know that he has been pushing a lot on the with technology and investing. Right, that is what generally drove a, a big. Their big share price drop earlier this year mm-hmm. was the announcement that you know they wouldn't hit their uh, their guidance for what it was 2018, I believe. So they'd hit on the top line, wouldn't hit with their operating income. But you know his reason being, you know, we're going to take some of that money and invest it back in the company. What are your thoughts here? Right, absolutely. So to me, as a as a shareholder, whether with voting shares or non voting shares, I'm more bullish on Under Armour, knowing that Kevin Plank is going to remain. In a dominant leadership position, uh, you know, to me, I think that Kevin Plank has already shown in the last few years just where his long-term vision can take the company. I mean, look, look, five to ten years ago when footwear, you know, was kind of laughed at, or or getting into the connected fitness space with these uh, mobile fitness app acquisitions. You know, both in in the last couple of years, those seemed like maybe that was really expensive. That was um, not the company's core competencies. And then here we see, you know, this year footwear's turned out to be 25% of sales and one of their most important growth segments. Uh, you know, they have a, over 190 million users across their their connected fitness platforms. So you start to see these kind of long-term trends. And the idea that Kevin Plank is completely focused on, you know, the long-term past past 2018, like you said, the the big share price drop was because Kevin Plank came out and said that they're no longer foreseeing that they're going to make their 2015 goal of reaching 800 million operating profit by 2018. So the you know the short-term analysts really hit the stock on that. But looking past 2018, it's because of these investments that he and his company are making into, you know, kind of some future trends. Yeah, I should note that uh, you know since the this that C uh, class share dividend was issued when they did the split, um, the C shares are actually down about 43 percent. And the original A shares are down about thirty percent. So mm-hmm. you know the stock has taken uh, a bit of a beating in the past six seven months or so. Um, but I think the big thing uh, that we can uh, tie ourselves to, or at least uh, keep in mind, is what you mentioned. Is you know that that is just a view or guidance out to twenty eighteen. That's two years. 
Right. Um, and if you're taking a more foolish view of this, and you're looking ten years out or even longer, and you believe in what <laughs> you know the incredible performance that the company has been able to deliver year over year in terms of its you know double digit growth, top and bottom lines, and yep. uh, you know we'll talk a little bit more I think about more specific initiatives in the next few minutes. But again, you know keep in mind that that is just with this. Um, more bearish trading that the companies or the shares have experienced. You know that's based on a 2018 view and the fact that you know Wall Street research analysts have these very complex valuation models and that are built very much on guidance like that. So sure, you know the cut hurts, but again, this is just a two-year view of the company and probably not the way I'm sure. For example, you, Seth, view its longer-term <laughs> prospects. Right, of course. Like you know, you know, we're looking at a company for much more than just the next year or two. Uh, but you know, what looks really attractive about the stock now is that uh, it's trading. Looking out just one year at expected earnings, the stock is trading at one of the lowest price to future earnings that it's ever traded at, um, at about 35 for the non-voting shares and 44 for the voting shares. Um, so, I mean, right now to me, that looks like a, a discount, a chance to get into this company for a cheaper valuation than you would have ever been able to. And if you're looking past next year, you know, up to the next five or ten years, that valuation starts to look a lot more attractive. Yep. All right. So let's get into some of the specifics. Um, and I think there are, there's been a lot of activity in one city specifically that I think is really interesting. And with, uh, so this is in New York, uh, and not only Under Armour, but you know, its two biggest competitors, uh, those companies being Nike and Adidas, ha- are pursuing some very uh, Big investments and large, uh, uh, I guess, just taking a big stake in these huge stores in the city. Uh, can you explain to me a little bit of what they're thinking? Because you know, generally people see, you know, a lot of other chains think about Macy's. Uh, you know, they're reducing their footprint, whereas mm-hmm. here, you know, these companies are building out this uh, these huge facilities. And I, you know, what? How do you view this in terms of how it bucks the trend in terms of uh, people moving their spending online and uh, away from you know a brick and mortar actual store location? Yeah, well, well, I mean, it all started here uh, just a couple of weeks ago with Nike opening their massive new store uh, in the Soho district in New York City. Uh, I mean, we're talking about a, a fifty-five thousand square foot, five-story building right in the middle of you know one of the most expensive parts of New York. Uh, this store looks incredible. I mean, each each level is kind of a different theme or a different sport. There's um, there's a basketball court inside the store where where users can come in and they can test out new products and they can play on the court. And there's some really neat kind of digital tech features that'll give players real time coaching and feedback. They connect it right to their Nike mobile app and kind of kind of record their stats and and save all save all their favorite gear. Um, there's similar things for soccer and running. I mean, it's just it's a massive store, and there's so much going on there. And they're also hosting, you know, celebrities and and professional athletes coming in, hosting seminars inside the store. It looks great. Yep. And of course, you know, not to be outdone, Adidas <laughs> opened a similar kind of you know almost flagship location not that long ago as well, right? Yeah, this was just last week, um, and theirs is right on Fifth Avenue. It looks the same, not not quite as big, but but still massive, four stories, um, over forty thousand square feet, and it kind of looks the same. You know, they have fitness consultants in there, they have trainers, uh, a full concierge desk, you know, a cafe, um, some other interesting features like same day hotel delivery for for people who are traveling in New York, um, some kind of running analysis so people can can pick the perfect shoes that work right with their with their stride and. 
it's just uh, it's all of it's a very tech infused kind of feel. Yep. And um, so for Plank then and with Under Armour, what has their response been? Um, from what I hear, they're actually taking over a very, very famous space <laughs> within the city, right? Right. Yeah. So so obviously Nike's had the lease uh, and Adidas have had these leases for a while. Um, Under Armour earlier this year announced that they've taken over the lease or uh, the very famous FAO Schwartz toy store. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the toy store right in the middle of New York, at, you know, the massive um, space that has kind of been in so many movies and stuff. Under Armour will be taking over that lease starting in 2019. They hope to open a store there. Mm-hmm. So that would and- be pretty interesting. And, um, it, you know, I'm not sure how much detail that they have been able to provide in terms of what to expect from this location, but I get a sense, based on what the competitors have done, the kind of more interactive experience they want to offer, where it's not just somewhere you go to shop for your shoes or your clothes, it's more of like a destination. And um, it seems like this is kind of, uh, I, I've seen this take hold uh, in terms of apparel and retail, not with just these uh, sports apparel brands, but another really good example of this is with Urban Outfitters. Um, They have opened some kind of these test pilot locations in uh, New York and in Austin recently and a few others where they're trying to combine like an event space for music or um, you know some type of local craft market with the obvious apparel part of the store, the part of the retail experience, but then also with a restaurant as well. You know, obviously I think a lot of people scratched were scratching their heads when they made that uh, the, when they made the Vetri acquisition for, you know, this pizza chain. But obviously, uh, you know, another example if you know beyond Urban Outfitters and just looking into uh, if you look at what a Bass Pro or Cabela's does, is mm-hmm. you know these stores are destinations unto themselves. So it's kind of interesting to see this take hold. Um, and while some retailers are pulling back, others maybe you know taking uh, you know if you even look at an Amazon and how they're starting to uh, test and expand with these physical brick and mortar locations, kind of you know coming full circle, seeing that. You know, regardless of how important e-commerce will become, and the benefits that it offers, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, is that you know you'll come for a circle, full circle, and see some very interesting. You know, it seems more so marketing benefits to having locations like these, right? Right, and and you're you're right. We don't really know what that Under Armour store is going to look like, but mm-hmm. from what they you know what they said in the releases, it'll be the greatest single retail store in the world. So it really shows that this is. You know, it's almost more of a, a marketing attempt by these companies that can plant their flag and they can really show show what they have to offer without necessarily trying to sell as much gear through that one specific location. It's really more of a chance for them to showcase, have have an event center, um, have people come test out some products, uh, and then you know by that by having a really connected e-commerce strategy to those brick and mortar stores, they're able to make all that kind of work together. Yep. So tell me a little bit then about you know what your view is. Uh, in terms of the, you know, besides these stores, obviously interesting. It's really cool to see these developments and how they're trying to leverage the spaces with their broader strategy. But what do you think then is going to be really important for Under Armour going forward, driving, uh, you know, their their actual uh, top and bottom line? Well, look, I I know Under Armour certainly has some risks ahead of itself. It's it's investing in some some very long term future trends uh, going forward. You know, the things they're working on now with expanding internationally, working on on their footwear, making sure that they understand a connected retail strategy between partners like Kohl's, as well as a really important direct-to-consumer and e-commerce strategy. 
Uh, those are the kinds of things that are going to continue driving the quick growth that we've seen in the last five years forward for the next five or ten. Yeah, and so can you elaborate a little bit more on uh, the direct to consumer? Uh, I think that's very relevant now. You know, I, we had a show recently where we talked about. Uh, Black Friday, uh, you know the holiday shopping season overall. Uh, I think every a lot of people, if you have been following uh, consumer trends in the past few years, have you have generally seen headlines indicate that more and more spending dollars are moving online. Uh, foot traffic is not quite as strong as it used to be. You know the these doorbuster deals don't get people out quite as much because they're either spreading out their spending, and I you know online stores are making that much more possible, right? Yeah, I don't know how much uh, shopping you did over the last couple of weeks through through all the Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but to me, it felt like the exact same deals, you know, lasted for about two weeks. Like, I, I don't think that there, I don't think there's any longer a need to kind of have a specific time that people are forced to buy something. And I think that makes sense. You know, these companies are are seeking to cultivate customers for the long term. It's no longer about trying to get a one off hit and then every year trying to produce some sort of deal that's going to get you a small sales growth. You know, it's about cultivating long term. Customers that that know and understand your brand, and that's why direct to consumer is so important, is because it's it's much easier for a company like Nike or Under Armour to have that to own and control that customer relationship when they're sending the product directly to the customer instead of through a you know through a Foot Locker or a Dix or a as we've seen with Sports Authority as it's gone underwater, uh, you know they can also really make sure they control inventory, make sure they understand trends that are happening, uh, and plan accordingly. Yeah, I think the big. Uh, the big investments that Armour made with the connected fitness apps, for example, is ultimately it's a you know it's a move to better understand who your customers are. And mm-hmm. you know now you mentioned with uh, their direct to consumer strategy and how removing that middleman again gives them a better view of what is in demand, uh, what uh, features or uh, or fashion trends even are kind of resonating more with their customers and and which lines and products they they are selling better. So. Um, you know, as we wrap up our discussion, anything else in terms of uh, the connected fitness, the e-commerce that you think uh, is worth is notable, worth mentioning for you know Nike, Adidas, or Under Armour, and uh, you know we'll go from there. Yeah, I think it's it's important to watch how what these companies are doing specifically to grow their e-commerce footprint. You have companies like both Nike and Under Armour have, have opened new mobile apps this year. Uh, that are connected to some of their fitness apps, they can get even more data from the the users uh, and market to them more effectively. You're looking at at specific country specific uh, new dot coms opening up around the world. Nike opened up 20 new country specific sites around the world this last year, doubling to 40. Uh, and so that's kind of a way that they can they can spread their footprint further while also keeping everything within this e-commerce world. Okay. All right. Thanks, Seth. Uh, I will leave it at that. Uh, it seems to me like uh, you know you are generally you know what I who I consider to be one of our uh, big followers of Unarmor. I know you've been to a lot of their events yeah. and uh, generally a fan of the vision that Plank has. So it sounds to me, you know, with the uh, with this ticker symbol change, uh, not much of a you know a fundamental shift there, but the core idea being right now because of that spread. Uh, seems like a good opportunity if you you know are taking that longer term view uh, to get essentially even if you currently hold right class A shares right have you thought you know I'm not sure about your own uh, your own view of this but you know you could sell out of those and get in 
uh, increase your position in Under Armour in the true, you know, fundamental economic interest of the company. Uh, increase your position by twenty percent by just moving your shares over to the discounted Class C. Sure, you can do that, or just like I've done, is just increase your position with buying some of those Class C. Uh, and and this change happens tomorrow, so I guess we'll see after tomorrow how much that uh, gap closes. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Seth, for uh, for joining me. Uh, it's great having you on. Thanks, Vince. Uh, so that wraps up our discussion of uh, Under Armour and uh, you know these dual share classes for today. But you can reach out to us and the rest of the Industry Focus crew via Twitter at MF Industry Focus, or send us any questions via email to industryfocus at fool.com. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have four more recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening, and Fool on.